0: Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep, forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 90 of History of the Marine Corps. The Battle of Soissons, part two. After the first day of battle, the 5th Marine Regiment lost a significant part of its force. Both sides would reorganize for the night. German General Baron von Watter moved the 46th Division to the front lines and the 6th Marines prepared to meet the fresh German troops. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The first day of battle was challenging for the 5th Marines. German resistance resulted in more than 450 casualties. Neither side attacked that night, and the German and Allied forces used the quiet to prepare for the next day. The Fighting 5th would have some much-needed rest, as much rest as you can have in a war zone, and the 6th Marines would fight in their place. At 0630, Marines left their camp and started to advance towards the German location. At 8.25, they reached their spot. The terrain at Soissons was not ideal for the Marines. The Germans were more than half a mile away, and U.S. troops had to travel across a relatively featureless battlefield with no cover and little concealment. Waist-high wheat was the only thing troops had to hide from the Germans. Major Robert Denig recounted the start of the battle. We formed up in a sunken road that was perpendicular to the enemy's front. Hughes' right, Holcomb's left, Sibley support. I hear Lieutenant Overton call to one of his friends to send a certain pin to his mother should he get hit, unquote. Marines were supported by the 2nd Field Artillery and French tanks. The Germans prepared well, and they built up their lines to stop Allied forces from taking the road. German General Baron von Watter moved entire divisions to help with the defense. This location was one of the most important on the entire front and command ordered it to be held at all costs. The six marines advanced on a front that stretched 2,500 yards with the 1st Battalion, commanded by Hughes, on the right, and the 2nd Battalion by Holcomb, on the left. Sergeant Donald Paradis of the 80th Company describes that day, quote, Our company moved out in two waves, about 50 yards between waves. Our battalion headquarters consisting of about 30 men, also moved in two waves, just back of the 80th company's second wave. It was about a 1,000 yards to the German lines, and as we started forward, the German shellfire concentrated just a couple of hundred yards in front of their lines. The concentration was so great that it seemed like a black curtain, and it seemed to me that Colonel Holcomb was headed for the thickest and blackest part of that German line. Unquote. German artillery was very efficient that day, and their bombardment combined with the machine guns slaughtered the assaulting battalions. Within 30 minutes, the number of Marines cut down was so significant that two companies were sent in to fill the gaps. It was only 8.55 in the morning. Sibley sent the 84th Company to the left of the 1st Battalion, and the 83rd to the right of the 2nd Battalion. Sergeant Jerry Thomas recounts, We formed right up soon after daybreak. My battalion came up out of the Vierzy ravine and deployed on the edge of the wheat field. The Germans, who were over on the right on a hill, spotted us. They started throwing machine gun bullets at us. I could see Holcomb's battalion come out of the orchard, way off to our left, and deploy and move out. We lay there. And after a while, we heard rumbling. It was the tanks. When the tanks passed through, the command forward came. We got up and started going with them. Unquote. Fifty-four French tanks began the battle that day. Only 28 were still operational during this attack. They were the prime target for artillery. And Germans would destroy 11 more during the morning fight. Sergeant Gus Goldberg stated, quote, Some of our men were hit before we got started. The whistle blew, and we were off, behind a platoon of whippet tanks. These tanks were a great help to the infantry in cleaning out machine gun nests, but I would rather take my chances without them rather than follow them, because they draw artillery fire, unquote. At 10 a.m., the 96th Company reached their location but flanking support couldn't keep up. The Moroccans to the left were hit hard during this attack. They fell behind, and as a result, the 96 received many casualties on their open flank. In two hours, they had 26 killed and 56 wounded. Every officer in the company was a casualty. Lieutenant Clifford Cates recounts, The Moroccans that were supposed to have attacked on our left didn't appear at all. We broke the first German lines without too much trouble. By that time, though, we were catching Billy Hell. I had just remarked to this sergeant of mine close to me, Look at Captains Woodworth and Robertson getting right together there. That's bad business. I hadn't any more than said it when a shell hit close to them, and they both went down. By that time, the other lieutenants had all been wounded and I was the only one left out of the company. I tried to take charge, but just about that time, a whole bunch of Germans jumped up out of the trench and started running, and our men went after them like a bunch of coyotes. With that, it was bedlam. I was never able to organize them again. I kept the attack going for about a kilometer, I guess. By that time, though, we were getting terrific fire from our left flank. The attack just petered out. We were up near an old sugar mill, and that's where I wrote that message to Major Holcomb. I think I said, I have 20 men out of my company, or out of my battalion, and a few stragglers. And I wound up saying, I will hold. By that time, though, I had a pretty bad wound across my knee. Unquote. The wound Kate's mentioned would earn him a nickname. He was hit by a shell fragment, and the force of the shrapnel literally tore his pants off. Cates tied a blanket around his waist, which made it look like he was wearing a kilt. He was called Kilty. The losses of the original front lines were more than 50%. The casualties were so high that it was impossible to evacuate any wounded. Overton was killed that day, and Denig took it hard. He recounted, quote, Overton was hit by a big piece of shell and fell. Afterward." I heard that he was buried that night and the pin for his mother was found. Unquote. These stories always hit me hard. Hearing the frontline troops lost more than 50% of their strength is a real revelation on the challenges Allied forces faced during this war. But for me, something is lost in these numbers. The personal story of Overton, of any Marine, or any troop fighting in the war makes it personal. This is the part of history I'm most fascinated with, which is why I quote so many people during each episode. To get a sense of what any of these wars were like, you need to go to the troops. During this advance, there's another interesting story about Marine Sergeant Goldberg. During this battle, he rushed a few hundred yards towards the Germans. He felt a pain in his right leg, and he looked. There were two bullet holes from a machine gun, He tried to advance, but he was knocked down from another round. Unable to move, he hugged the ground and tried to drink from his canteen, but it was empty. He saw a corpse lying next to him, reached over for his canteen, but that was empty as well. This was at 10 in the morning, and the Marines stayed there throughout the battle, with artillery shells falling next to him and machine gun fire going over his head. It was still morning and the Germans weren't done attacking. They launched a devastating artillery attack on the Marines. Private James Hatcher recounts, The artillery barrage descended in earnest. Many men were falling torn and mangled beyond description. The shells seemed to come in one solid, screaming rushing stream. The ground seemed alive with bursting geysers of smoke and dust. By this time, Some of the enemy's artillery was firing at point blank range, and one shell passed so close to my head the rush of air nearly shoved me off my feet. This was a rough time for the Marines, and a few of them saw their brothers literally decapitated by German artillery fire. At this point of the battle, it seemed like things were done for the Marines. The remaining men took cover in the half completed trenches left by the Germans. Marine Sergeant Paradis tells a story, quote, We reached the German front lines and found a series of foxholes that they had abandoned. What few of us that were left fell into these foxholes. We even piled on top of each other to seek cover from that murderous shellfire. I laid there, with every muscle in my body twitching, hardly knowing what I was doing. We could hear the wounded calling for help but very little could be done for them until after dark came. Our advance had not taken long. We were in the German foxholes probably by 9, 9.30, and from then until 4 p.m. The shell fire, machine gun, and rifle fire never gave up. Unquote. Marine Private Carl Brennan was also in a dire situation. He thought he was the only survivor of Overton's platoon. Quote, in 30 or 45 minutes, our regiment had been almost annihilated. The field which had been recently crossed was strewn with dead and dying," unquote. Denig emotionally recounts hearing the casualties call out for help in the wheat fields that day, saying that their cries would get weaker and weaker until they died out. The 6th Marines were in dire straits, and no more reinforcements were coming. At 13:30, Hubbard gave the following order to the 6th, The division commander desires that you dig in and entrench your present position, and hold it at all costs. No further advance is to be made for the present. He desires to congratulate your command upon its gallant conduct in the face of severe casualties, But the six marines didn't need this advice. They were already dug in, and the second division didn't make further progress that day. Their mission changed to evacuate the thousands of casualties. Major Sibley sent a simple status report to Lee that night, quote, Situation worse than I had wished to believe, unquote. Sergeant Thomas was the senior Marine left in Overton's 75th Company. He crawled to each fighting hole, trying to find remaining Marines. As night fell, Marines sent water parties to help the wounded. They started to gather up those who were injured on the battlefield and move them to a safer location. The Marines held their position that day. The occasional planes were circling above, and U.S. troops fired at them with their rifles and machine guns, but their attacks did very little damage. At 1840, Lee sent a status report to his brigade commander, Neville, I'm enclosing two sketches of positions of 1st and 3rd battalions. It is impossible to move from one position to another without drawing all sorts of fire. Battalion commanders placed losses at from 40 to 50 percent, unquote. The Marines suffered significantly that day. Out of the 2,450 Marines who marched onto the battlefield, 1,300 were either dead or wounded. In Holcomb's battalion, only three officers were left. Sibley faced a similar situation, and out of the 36 officers and 850 enlisted, only 16 officers and 385 enlisted remained. That night, Sibley sent a status report to Lee that said, quote, We'll continue holding the line until we can be reinforced or relieved. In front lines, canteens are practically all empty and very few remaining rations. Can water and rations be sent to us or a relief sent? We have no flares, pyrotechnics, or flare pistols. We have no hand grenades. Many of their Shoshaws are out of action because of loss of men, unquote. Now, a Shoshaw is one of the first automatic light machine guns. They were terribly unreliable during World War I. They broke down all the time. But desperate times called for desperate solutions, and the Marines took whatever they could get their hands on. Casualties were placed on top of a thin layer of straw on trucks. It was tough getting Marines out and German artillery constantly targeted the roads in which they traveled. Corpsmen suffered heavily trying to help the wounded Marines. One surgeon reports, quote, Packed closely to conserve precious space on the hard floors of heavy trucks, load after load of critically injured men left the mouth of the cave, passing through poisonous gas and over shell-torn roads undergoing terrific bombardment. These trucks with their groaning and screaming cargoes bouncing around, rushed to reach possible safety many kilometers away. Many died en route. Unquote. Second Lieutenant Samuel Meek Jr. was assigned to the 82nd Company of Sibley's Battalion. He was a good friend of Overton. They both attended Yale and were from Nashville, Tennessee. After hearing his longtime friend was killed, he went looking for him. He found Overton's body in the wheat field and buried him where he laid. Quote, he lies about 2,000 yards from Vierzy. His grave is marked by his identification tag on a stick in the ground. Unquote. By process of elimination, Sergeant Thomas was now the commander of the 75th Company. Quote, I got my 33 men. I went back to battalion headquarters. We made stretchers out of blankets wrapped around rifles, and we carried the wounded out. Later we may have found another 35 or 40 men at different places, but my company lost over 50%. We really took a shellacking. During the night of July 19th, the 4th Brigade withdrew from its original starting position. It was relieved by the French 58th Colonial Division, at 4 a.m. They tried to gather as many wounded as they could carry, and began their march back, on roads that continued to receive the occasional artillery fire from German troops. Most Marines didn't have anything to eat in four days. When they finally arrived late in the evening on July 20th, Marine Private Brannon was excited to get a meal of slumgillion. This doesn't sound too appetizing, but it's a type of meat stew. U.S. troops were given the much-needed rest after a devastating battle, and they made their way to camp in the rear. Harbard and his chief of staff, Colonel Preston Brown, stood at the side of the road and watched U.S. troops march by exhausted, hungry, and thirsty. Harbard wrote, Battalions of only a couple of hundred men, companies of 25 or 30, singing by In the Grey Dawn, only a remnant, but a victorious remnant, thank God, Unquote. Out of the 196 Marines who marched out of the 80th Company, 45 were able to march back. U.S. troops at French field hospitals filled every bed and the entire yard. Quote, the doctors were busy giving anti-tetanus injections, and the Red Cross was giving out coffee, tea, cakes, and cigarettes. About 3 in the afternoon, they began tagging us. Those not too seriously wounded were marked, Evacuate, and the serious cases were marked, Operate here. By the late afternoon, all our troops, except for artillery units, were relieved. Mule drawn carts pulled in wood burning stoves, and on the 20th, Marines received a hot meal of pancakes, syrup, and coffee. 2nd Lieutenant Merwin Silverthorne said he has never seen anything look so good. The next day, Harbard sent a status report to Pershing, and he recognized that the 1st and 2nd Division had done a great job, but the Marines did exceptionally well. That same evening, Pershing made a personal visit and told Harvard, It appears I have to congratulate you every time I see you. Harbard passes this message to the Marines. Quote, It is with keen pride that the division commander transmits to the command the congratulations and affectionate personal greetings of General Pershing, who visited the division headquarters last night. Your advance over six miles captured over 3,000 prisoners, 11 batteries of artillery, over 100 machine guns, and supplies. The story of your achievements will be told in millions of homes in all Allied lands tonight. The outcome of Soissons was different for both regiments. While the 5th saw success against German forces, the 6th didn't have the benefit of surprise, and they went up against a strong defense. A Marine historian aptly describes the 6th Marine's challenges. The hopeless and bitter experience of trying to overcome machines with their bare bodies. Marines had around 2,000 casualties during its two days of fighting. The 6th Marines accounted for two-thirds of those losses. But despite the devastating cost, the Marines, combined with the U.S. Army and the Moroccan divisions, were credited for destroying German lines and forcing them to start their retreat. This was the beginning of the end for Germany, and their retreat at Soissons continued until the war was over. But despite the victory... The Marines lost a lot of men, and the memory of their fallen brothers started to kick in. Private Hatcher was marching back through the forest after Soissons, and he recounted the march. Quote: Someone started singing the old marching song, Hail, Hail, the Gangs All Here. As usual, the column joined in the song. But after a few words, the singing died away, and the little column marched along in silence. Those few words had brought home all too plainly the fact that the gang was not all here. Unquote. After resting for a few days, the division moved to the town of Nancy, and they began to form another unit that would take over part of the front. 2,000 replacements were absorbed into the Marine Brigade. The U.S. troop casualty was enormous. In his final report, General Pershing said, quote, Due to the magnificent dash and power displayed in the field of Soissons by our first and second division, the tide of war was definitely turned in favor of the Allies." Unquote. German Chancellor George von Hertling recounted that day: quote, "On the eighteenth, even the most optimistic among us understood that all was lost." Unquote. The success at Soissons helped Allied forces regain the upper hand and this superiority was never lost to the Germans again. The Germans started their retreat to the Meuse. After the 2nd Division had the chance to rest for a couple of days, they were ordered to take over another defensive sector. This 10-mile front was relatively quiet. The 4th Brigade was assigned the left half of the sector in the valley of the Moselle River. The Marines were split in half, and the 5th Regiment took the east bank while the 6th took the west. The 2nd Battalion of each regiment was placed in front, on a line that stretched for more than 2 miles. There wouldn't be too much activity for the Marines in this sector. They used this opportunity to improve the front lines and train new Marines on trench warfare. The only activity they saw was a group of Germans sneaking in around no-man's land, trying to cut some wire. The exceptional performance at Belleau Wood and Soissons convinced Allied leadership that the Marines' talent shouldn't be wasted in such a quiet part of the Western Front. On August 12th, the 82nd American Division relieved the Marines, and they headed to St. Miel. Thanks for listening. Next week, we head west with the 4th Brigade, and introduce the St. Miel Offensive. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is Hitler's American Gamble, Pearl Harbor and Germany's March to Global War. Written by Brendan Sims and Charlie Latterman. This book was just released about a week ago, and I stumbled on it by chance while doing some early Christmas shopping and decided to get myself a little something. It's an interesting look into the start of World War II and focuses on the five days between Pearl Harbor and when Germany declared war on the United States. This book reviews Hitler's decision to declare war on the U.S. There was a calculated risk to his decision, which I wasn't aware of until this book. We're still a few months away from World War II, but this book provides great information on the decisions leading up to the United States' entry into the war. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out Corps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.